Our text this morning is when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him, Jesus, until an opportune time. Now, for those of you that might have heard the message last week, whether it was online or you were here in the church, you'll recall that we looked at the topic or the challenges of trials and tribulations and afflictions that come to us or meet us in life. And hopefully one of the takeaways from that discussion was realizing that nothing touches you or I without the express knowledge or permission of God, who is sovereign over all. Hopefully we saw in, that, in the biblical examples of Job and Peter that the purpose of the trials and the tribulations were part of a process for testing or proving or refining our spiritual faith or showing what lives in our hearts. And we also looked at the accuser, Satan, and how he's involved in that testing process. And hopefully we came to realize how insignificant his participation really is or was. And what was important in all of it was how we respond or react to the trials and afflictions that come to us in our daily lives. And that's what James is speaking to, the part about the testing in verse 12 that I just read, where he says he embraces the believer. If you read the start of the chapter from 1 all the way down to 12, he's talking about the testing process. And he says in verse 12, and it sounds like he's embracing the believer, he's drawing them in, he's putting his arms around them, or God is, and he summarizes the purpose for the test. And he says, whoever perseveres under all these kinds of trials and tribulations, because when he or she has stood the test, has proved themselves, it says they will receive the the crown of life promised by God. So there it is. And you can draw a line under verse 12 because then in verse 13, if you listen to the language, James quickly changes the approach by now addressing the topic of temptation rather than testing. And this is important for us as believers to hear. There is a difference between testing and temptation. And James wants the reader to realize that there is a big difference, a major difference. And we need to note that in James 1, verses 13 and 14. He clearly makes the point, he says, temptation, that temptation and the fallout from it has a limited and very limited protection from God. Did you hear that? That the fallout from temptation, the whole process of temptation, has a very limited involvement from God. He says that when he says, no one should say that God is tempting me. In other words, he's saying, 
Temptation does not originate from God. In other words, the matter of our own personal accountability and responsibility now becomes an important part of this discussion on temptation. And temptation isn't reserved just for the believer. In the book of Corinthians, it's made clear. 1 Corinthians 10 says, No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man or mankind. All mankind is confronted by temptation. They have to wrestle with it. They will succumb to it. And it's a reality of our life here on earth. And the biggest reason that temptation succeeds in all of mankind is because of the condition of all hearts. That none of us seek of ourselves or are drawn towards the righteousness and the holiness of God. And what lives in our hearts tends to lead us into all kinds of temptations and sin. I read part of this last week, Matthew 15. Jesus himself tells us, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, etc. And now I've added what Jesus said in Mark 7, and this is in addition to that list, where he added greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, arrogance, and folly. And I'm sure we can continue to make a list. So whether you're a Christian or not, all of us have this same struggle, the same battle, the same war with what I call the big three. One, our flesh, or you could say your heart. Two, the world, and three, Satan. And all three come into play as you and I maneuver through the minefield of temptations in our lives. And I would submit to you this morning that what will help our daily walk or our daily battle on this earth is to understand what's going on in this struggle with sin and to be wise, to be understanding, to be alert, and to be aware of the forces and the enemies that you and I battle on a day-to-day basis. And we can learn something to help us from the story of Jesus in the desert, especially from our text this morning. Because we're told that after the devil had spent 40 days tempting Jesus, it says he left him until an opportune time. You see, that's what the devil and his minions do. They roam the earth looking for golden opportunities. Those times where you and I are ripe to be tempted and ready to be conquered by sin. Those are called opportune times. What might they be? Moments of weakness? Look at Jesus. It says he hadn't eaten for 40 days, and it even confesses in the scriptures that he was hungry. 
So he was on his own. He was alone and isolated, having not eaten. You put yourself in that situation or myself, we would probably be mentally and physically stressed. It would be an opportune time. Or an opportune time can also be a moment of great strength and confidence and arrogance in our lives. It says Jesus had just been baptized in the Holy Spirit, full of power and strength. So the enemy might be thinking, oh, Jesus might be arrogant and proud. And it would come into play and create an opportunity as well. The one beauty, beautiful part of the story, the desert story, is that Jesus confirms and proves that he was greater than Satan, and he did not sin. But it also reminds us, you and I, that in our broken and sinful condition, we're not Jesus, and we're not perfect, and we will sin. And the blunt reality for you and I, especially this morning, is that you and I are the greatest providers of ammunition and opportunities for the enemy to exploit. Remember, we touched on this a bit last week. Satan is a created being, a fallen angel. He looks for our, he needs our help. He looks for openings. He exploits the opportunities that we provide. You could say he's often the unseen partner to the crime. But he has limited resources and powers. So he has to be very sly and deceptive about how he goes about things. You remember that gap? The gap that we keep talking about? It's tremendously important for us to be reminded of it, congregation. Because in our own human DNA we have a a tendency to lose sight of it. We have a tendency to forget how big God is and how small we are. Because God's eternal. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. But Satan has to roam. He has to go from place to place to place. God's omniscient, all-knowing, He's holy, he's perfect, he's all-powerful and sovereign, and he's good, and he's God, and the Bible says God is love, and Satan is none of those things, and his goal is to deceive, to kill, and destroy. So, Satan cannot do the things that God can do. In fact, he can't even force us to give in to temptation. He can't drag us into a situation without our willing participation. That's where the personal accountability comes into play. There was an old comic years ago, some of you might have heard it, who came up with the saying, the devil made me do it. 
Not true. And you could say that Eve tried to make the same argument in the garden when she pointed to the snake and said it's his fault. You see, the devil cannot physically force us to do anything. But he can. He can look for opportunities and he can use those opportunities to exact a lot of pressure and energy to hook us in. That's what James is warning us about. And I'm going to use the English Standard Version. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. By his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, if we let it continue to grow, will bring forth eventually spiritual death. So you see, the first step for the enemy is to take advantage of of any opportunity that he deems advantageous. And it's one that you and I probably provided. And then the luring process would begin. Remember? The colors. And each one of us is attracted to some different type of color or different item in our lives. You know, the Bible supplies many examples of how this works if you go back and read the stories. Eve, in the garden, once on her own, is approached by Satan. And what does he do? He engages her in conversation. I I challenge you to go home and read the story again and take time to read today and then think about the picture of the garden. Because he successfully gets Eve to focus on the forbidden tree and fruit. But it was a garden. That garden was full. It was full of perfect trees, perfect vegetation, beautiful foliage. And he manages to get her to focus on the forbidden tree and the forbidden fruit. To the point where that she finally notes that, you know, that fruit's very pleasing to the eye. And it appealed to her desire to know more about the tree and the fruit. And then he also twists God's word and he sowed doubt into the mind of Eve about what God's instructions really were. Or how about King David? You remember the story of Bathsheba? Where he goes up on the roof of the castle. By the way, he wasn't supposed to be there because his troops were at war. And the king should have been with his troops. But he decided to stay home. Probably because... Right now, he was in a good place. He had conquered all of his enemies, most of them. He was enjoying a season of peace in the land. And he ventures out on the roof. And I wonder what was going through his mind. I wonder if it was he wanted to go out and he wanted to view his kingdom. The expanse of it and the pride of it. And while he's out there, he notices Bathsheba bathing. And a desire is stirred in his heart 
eyeing this beautiful woman. And Satan may very well have whispered in David's ear, David, you're king. You're entitled to anything in the kingdom because God's given it to you. And we know that David had a weakness for women to start with, as probably most men do. And I have to go to a sidebar here because I think this is important for us to understand in the concept of temptation. The main tool for Satan, congregation, is observation and hearing. He watches our lives, what we do, what we say, and he technically keeps record of it all to exploit. Those are the opportune times when they come up in our lives. Mr. X, oh, Mr. X, he, he has a bad temper. Or Mrs. Y, she loves to gossip when she hears a new story. But Satan cannot know our hearts or read our thoughts. But I do suggest that I believe that he has some powers of which One of them is that he can supernaturally whisper. It's almost like those commercials you've seen on TV where there's this little guy sitting on the guy's shoulder and whispering in his ear. And I'm positive that he will take those situations when the lure is there and the situation is there and he's there and he whispers in our ear and says, Go for it. Look at how great it looks. Or look at, you've wanted it all along. And I'm positive that all of us here can think and find situations like these in our own lives. You're caught in a difficult marriage. The enemy has observed the arguments in the household, the discord. And then conveniently, a relationship starts up with a person outside of our marriage circle. And it begins to foster. And then the enemy comes along and he whispers in your ear, maybe you married the wrong person. Or you deserve better than you have. Or life would be better with someone else. So go for it. Or Mr. X on a business trip. Or even at home, maybe you're a teenager at home, all alone, and a strong suggestion, a whisper comes to you. Go ahead. Take out that laptop or open up the computer and browse through the pornographic sites that you know are there and you desire to see. No one will know about this private sin. But guess what? Satan sees it all. He records it. But as long as it was in the heart and in the mind, he doesn't know it's there. And I could go on and on. I trust you can too. Because including me, I can think of how this can happen. I know it has happened for all of us, and it possibly will happen again. 
I trust we can see how if we give in to this and it grows and it grows and it grows, it says it gives birth to sin. And when fully conceived, it brings us to death, spiritual death. And that's the ultimate goal of the enemy for my life and yours. Complete and total spiritual destruction. And here's the challenge. Because and yet, God's word is clear. It's clear that we don't need to be losers in this spiritual battle. Because later on in James chapter four, he says this. He said, submit yourselves to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Or 1 Peter 5 says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And then what does he say? Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And the implication is it's the same as the other one, and he'll flee from you. Those passages encourage you and I to be self-controlled, to resist, to be wise about what's happening here. It's implying to you and I that we can be in a position to win these battles. So the question is, how can we? How can we become strong and better prepared for these battles so that we can win instead of lose? And I've just got a few, just a couple defenses but I think the first one is critical because the first part of the Luke passage said Jesus was led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. So if there's anybody that's listening this morning, that's here this morning, and you're not a confessing Christian, you're not born again, you don't know Jesus, You've never asked him to come and make a home in your heart. If you do not walk with the Holy Spirit within you, then according to the scriptures, you're already in big spiritual trouble. That's not my opinion. That's the word of God. Romans 7 clearly points out the spiritual problem. If you read it, It's where Paul confesses, he says, I'm a slave to sin. And then he says, the good things that I want to do, the good things that are in my heart, he says, I'm unable to do them because I end up sinning instead. And he talks about this battle that's going on inside of him and how he continues to lose. And he confesses, he says, I'm unspiritual as a being. But then he makes a confession as to what fixes the problem. And that's that many passages in God's work suggest that if we have not been set free by Jesus, we're already in bondage to sin and death. We've already got chains on our wrists and shackles on our feet. And we'll not only be enticed, but we'll be dragged away to eventually experience spiritual and physical death. In other words, we need Jesus 
in our lives. James 1, verse 18, we didn't read it, but he points to that truth. He said, he, God, gave us birth through the word of truth. A new birth. And that word of truth is Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what Easter's all about. The cross and the resurrection. The reason Jesus appeared, it says in 1 John, was to destroy the works of the devil and our bondage to sin. Jesus came and he suffered and he died and he paid the price for our sin with his blood to set us free from the tyranny of the devil. You know what tyranny means if you go and look at it? It's not complete dominance. It's almost like describing a bully. It's somebody that's always there around the corner that wants to bully you and make you think that you can't do this or that. That's what tyranny is. But it doesn't imply total dominance. Isaiah 61, Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners. That's Easter. That's the death and resurrection And what it does is, when we allow Jesus to come into our lives, he changes our hearts. He transforms us from the inside. And he fills us with the Holy Spirit. Then he completely changes the terms of engagement in this spiritual battle. He completely changes the landscape of the battlefield. And then our confession will be and should be what we read in 1 John 4 when it says, we are children of God now, and we have overcome. Why? Because the one who is greater in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Did you get that? And that happens when you become a Christian. The one who is greater in you is now greater than the one who is in the world. Defense number two, and there's two of them that fall under this category, is we need to study and know the scriptures. I mean, if we had read the whole account of Luke 4, and I'm sure many of you have in the past, we would have noticed that Jesus refuted Satan at every turn by using the word of God. And we know from other scriptures that there were more than just three. There's no denying the power of the word of God. The very son of God doing battle with Satan uses the word of God. That should tell us something this morning. And then Ephesians 6 verse 13, when it talks about putting on the full armor of God, which is a whole chapter that talks about this spiritual battle we're talking about. It says, so that when the day of evil comes, we can stand, and part of the armor that we're supposed to wear is the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. You see, the more we know the Word of God, the better equipped you and I will be to discern truth from lies, reality from deception. We need to recognize that Satan also used scripture in the desert 
And he'll do it against us as well unless we understand to use the scriptures properly. The second reason is studying the word of God will help you and I to understand who we are before God. All of us here this morning have a history. Doesn't matter your age. And in our own personal biographies, we've all sinned. And Satan is mindful of those sins. He's recorded them wherever he does. He's blogged them all. He knows. It's one of his main tactics and weapons to draw us in and take us captive. In other words, he knows our hot buttons. He knows our personal weaknesses. And mine is different than yours or yours or yours. He knows the cracks in our spiritual armor, even if you're a Christian. And he will exploit them at every opportunity. That's why Hebrews 4 tells us that the word of God, the work and the word of God through the work of the Holy Spirit works to show us the motives and attitudes of our hearts. You see, the Holy Spirit, if we read the word of God and pray about it, the Spirit will highlight those areas in our lives, in our hearts that need to be dealt with, that live there that shouldn't live there that should be put to death, as Paul says. The Spirit will help to sharpen our spiritual radar to situations that can open the door to temptation and eventual sin. In our confession today, James 1 verse 13 starts out by saying, when tempted. And I hope you notice that the passage didn't say if tempted. It said when. James is telling us that temptation will come to us all. Times considered as opportunities by the devil. And you and I both know that we're not in heaven yet. Even if we're a confessing Christian... We're not perfect. We're not completely holy. We'll still struggle with our own flesh, with the world, and the devil. And we will, at times, still fail in some of these times. But we should never despair. And that was the word of encouragement that we read from Hebrews 4 this morning. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. Why? Because we have a high priest who is unable to, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way yet was without sin. And then it says, because of that, and because of what Jesus has done, it says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we can receive mercy when we do sin, and forgiveness, and find grace 
in our times of need. Ultimately, we need to look to and go to Jesus. And may each one of us accept and know this offer of mercy and grace in our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we so thank you, Father, for the simpleness of your word, but the truth of it as well. Because, Lord, we can become so distracted by the things that go on around us. All the busyness, all the noise, all the language, Help us, Father, to take that veil away of darkness and to see your glory, Father. To understand who you are as the creator of this universe who saw fit to send your son to this earth to die for us so that we could live forever with you in heaven eternally washed clean forgiven spotless whiter than snow and so Lord help us during this time especially in the church calendar that we would reflect on the suffering of the good Friday but also the joy in the victory of Easter Sunday for our own lives And so we thank you and praise you, Lord, and ask that you hear us now in Jesus' name. Amen.